Chapter eighty one, part three of the Adventures of Peregrine Pickle, volume two. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter eighty one, the Memoirs of a Lady of Quality, part three. We broke up about five after having spent the most tedious evening I had ever known, and this offended lover went to bed in a state of sullen silence and disgust. Whatever desire I had to come to an explanation, I thought myself so much aggrieved by his unreasonable prejudice that I could not prevail upon myself to demand a conference till after his first nap, when my pride giving way to my tenderness, I clasped him in my arms, though he pretended to discourage these advances of my love. I asked how he could be so unjust as to take umbrage at my civility to a man whom he knew I had refused for his sake. I chid him for his barbarous endeavours to awake my jealousy, and used such irresistible arguments in my own vindication that he was convinced of my innocence, scaled my acquittal with a kind embrace, and we mutually enjoyed the soft transports of a fond reconciliation. Never was passion more eager, delicate, or unreserved than that which glowed within our breasts. Far from being cloyed with the possession of each other, our raptures seemed to increase with the term of our union. When we were separated, though but for a few hours, by the necessary avocations of life, we were unhappy during that brief separation, and met again like lovers who knew no joy but in one another's presence. How many delicious evenings did we spend together in our little apartment, after we had ordered the candles to be taken away? that we might enjoy the agreeable reflection of the moon in a fine summer's evening. Such a mild and solemn scene naturally disposes the mind to peace and benevolence, but when improved with conversation of the man one loves, it fills the imagination with ideas of ineffable delight. For my own part, I can safely say, my heart was so wholly engrossed by my husband that I never took pleasure in any diversion where he was not personally concerned. Nor was I ever guilty of one thought repugnant to my duty and my love. In the autumn we set out for the north, and were met on the road by the duke and twenty gentlemen, who conducted us to H. Inn, where we lived in all imaginable splendor. His grace at that time maintained above a hundred servants with a band of music which always performed at dinner, kept an open table, and was visited by a great deal of company. The economy of his house was superintended by his eldest sister, a beautiful young lady of an amiable temper with whom I soon contracted an intimate friendship. She and the Duke used to rally me upon my fondness for Lord W., who was sort of a humorist and apt to be in a pet in which case he would leave the company and go to bed by seven o'clock in the evening. On these occasions I always disappeared, giving up every consideration to that of pleasing my husband, notwithstanding the ridicule of his relations, who taxed me with having spoiled him with too much indulgence. But how could I express too much tenderness and condescension for a man who doted upon me to such excess, that when business obliged him to leave me, he always snatched the first opportunity to return, and often rode through darkness, storms, and tempests to my arms. Having stayed about seven months in this place, I found myself in a fair way of being a mother, 
and that I might be near my own relations in such an interesting situation, I and my dear companion departed from H.N., not without great reluctance, for I was fond of the Scots in general, who treated me with great hospitality and respect, and to this day they paid me the compliment of saying I was one of the best wives in that country, which is so justly celebrated for good women. Lord W., having attended me to my father's house, was obliged to return to Scotland to support his interest in being elected Member of Parliament, so that he took his leave of me with a full resolution of seeing me again before the time of my lying in. And all the comfort I enjoyed in his absence was the perusal of his letters, which I punctually received, together with those of his sister, who from time to time favoured me with assurances of his constancy and devotion. Indeed, these testimonials were necessary to one of my disposition, for I was none of those who could be contented with half a heart. I could not even spare one complacent look to any other woman, but expected the undivided homage of his love. Had I been disappointed in this expectation, I should, though a wife, have rebelled or died. Meanwhile my parents treated me with great tenderness, intending that Lord W. should be settled in a house of his own, and accommodated with my fortune, and his expectations from the Queen were very sanguine when I was taken ill and delivered of a dead child, an event which affected me extremely. When I understood the extent of my misfortune, my heart throbbed with such violence that my breast could scarce contain it and my anxiety, being aggravated by the absence of my lord, produced a dangerous fever, of which he was no sooner apprised by letter than he came post from Scotland. But before his arrival, I was supposed to be in a fair way. During this journey he was tortured with all that terrible suspense which prevails in the minds of those who are in danger of losing that which is most dear to them, and when he entered the house was so much overwhelmed with apprehension that he durst not inquire about the state of my health. As for my part, I never closed an eye from the time on which I expected his return, and when I heard his voice, I threw open my curtains and sat up in the bed to receive him, though at the hazard of my life. He ran towards me with all the eagerness of passion and clasped me in his arms. He kneeled beside the bedside, and kissed my hand a thousand times, and wept with transports of tenderness and joy. In short, this meeting was so pathetic as to overcome my enfeebled constitution, and we were parted by those who were wiser than ourselves, and saw that nothing was so proper for us as a little repose. But how shall I relate the deplorable transition from envied happiness to excess of misery which I now sustained? My month was hardly up when my dear husband was taken ill. Perhaps the fatigue of body as well as mind, which he had undergone on my account, occasioned a fatal ferment in his blood, and his health fell a sacrifice to his love. Physicians were called from London, but alas, they brought no hopes of his recovery. By their advice he was removed to town for the convenience of being punctually attended. Every moment was too precious to be thrown away. He was therefore immediately put into a coach, though the day was far spent, and I, though exceedingly weak, accompanied him in the journey which was performed by the light of flambeaux, and rendered unspeakably shocking by the dismal apprehension of losing him every moment. 
at length however we arrived at our lodgings in pall mall where i lay by him on the floor and attended the issue of his distemper in all the agonies of horror and despair in a little time his malady settled upon his brain and in his delirium he uttered such dreadful exclamations as were sufficient to pierce the most savage heart what effect then must they have had on mine which was fraught with every sentiment of the most melting affection it was not a common grief that took possession of my soul i felt all the aggravation of the most acute distress i sometimes ran down the street in a fit of distraction i sent for the doctors every minute i wearied heaven with my prayers even now my heart aches at the remembrance of what i suffered and i cannot without trembling proceed with the woeful story after having lain insensible some days he recovered the use of speech and called upon my name which he had a thousand times repeated while he was bereft of reason all hopes of his life were now relinquished and i was led to his bedside to receive his last adieus being directed to summon all my fortitude and suppress my sorrow that he might not be disturbed by my agitation i collected all my resolution to support me in this affecting scene i saw my dear lord in extremity the beauties of his youth were all decayed yet his eyes though languid retained unspeakable sweetness and expression he felt his end approaching put forth his hand and with a look full of complacency and benevolence uttered such a tender tale good heaven how had i deserved such an accumulated affliction the bare remembrance of which now melts me into tears human nature could not undergo my situation without suffering an ecstasy of grief i clasped him in my arms and kissed him a thousand times with the most violent emotions of woe but i was torn from his embrace and in a little time he was ravished forever from my view on that fatal morning which put a period to his life i saw the duchess of l approach my bed and from her appearance concluded that he was no more yet i begged she would not confirm the unhappy presage by announcing his death and she accordingly preserved the most emphatic silence i got up and trod softly over his head as if i had been afraid of interrupting his repose alas he was no longer sensible of such disturbance i was seized with a stupefaction of sorrow i threw up the window and looking around thought the sun shone with the most dismal aspect everything was solitary cheerless and replete with horror in this condition i was by the direction of my friend conveyed to her house where my faculties were so overpowered by the load of anguish which oppressed me that i know not what passed during the first days of my unhappy widowhood this only i know the kind duchess treated me with all imaginable care and compassion and carried me to her country house where i stayed some months during which she endeavoured to comfort me with all the amusements she could invent and laid me under such obligations as shall never be erased from my remembrance yet notwithstanding all her care and concern i was by my excess of grief plunged into a languishing distemper for which my physicians advise me to drink the bath waters in compliance with this prescription 
I went thither towards the ends of summer, and found some benefit to adhering to their directions. Though I seldom went abroad, except when I visited my sister-in-law, who was there with the princess, and upon these occasions I never failed to attract the notice of the company, who were struck with the appearance of such a young creature in weeds. Nor was I free from the persecution of professed admirers, but, being dead to all joy, I was deaf to the voice of adulation. About Christmas I repaired to my father's house, where my sorrows were revived by every object that recalled the idea of my dear lamented lord. But these melancholy reflections I was obliged to bear, because I had no other home or habitation, being left an unprovided widow, altogether dependent on the affection of my own family. During this winter, diverse overtures were made to my father by people who demanded me in marriage, but my heart was not yet sufficiently weaned from my former passion to admit the thoughts of another master. Among those that presented their proposals was a certain young nobleman, who, upon the first news of Lord W.'s death, came post from Paris in order to declare his passion. He made his first appearance in a hired chariot and six, accompanied by a big fat fellow whom, as I afterwards learned, he had engaged to sound his praises, with the promise of a thousand pounds, in lieu of which he paid him forty. Whether it was with a view of screening himself from the cold, or of making a comfortable medium in case of being overturned, and falling under his weighty companion, I know not. But certain it is, the carriage was stuffed with hay, in such a manner that, when he arrived, the servants were at some pains in rummaging and removing it before they could come at their master, or help him to alight. When he was lifted out of the chariot, he exhibited a very ludicrous figure to the view. He was a thin, meagre, shivering creature of a low stature, with little black eyes, a long nose, sallow complexion, and pitted with the smallpox. Dressed in a coat of light brown frieze lined with pink-colored shag, a monstrous solitaire and bag, and if I remember right, a pair of huge jack-boots. In a word, his whole appearance was so little calculated for inspiring love, that I had, on the strength of seeing him once before at Oxford, set him down as the last man on earth whom I would choose to wed, and I will venture to affirm that he was in every particular the reverse of my late husband. As my father was not at home, he stayed but one evening, and left his errand with my mother, to whom he was as disagreeable as to myself, so that his proposal was absolutely rejected, and I heard no more of him during the space of three whole months, at the expiration of which I went to town, where this mortifying figure presented itself again, and renewed his suit, offering such advantageous terms of settlement, that my father began to relish the match, and warmly recommended it to my consideration. Lord W.'s relations advised me to embrace the opportunity of making myself independent. All my acquaintance plied me with arguments to the same purpose. I was uneasy at home, and indifferent to all mankind. I weighed the motives with the objections, and with reluctance yielded to the importunity of my friends. In consequence of this determination, the little gentleman was permitted to visit me, and the manner of his address did not alter the opinion I had conceived of his character and understanding. 
I was even shocked at the prospect of marrying a man whom I could not love, and in order to disburden my own conscience, took an opportunity of telling him one evening, as we sat opposite to each other, that it was not in my power to command my affection, and therefore he could not expect the possession of my heart, Lord W.'s indulgence having spoiled me for a wife. Nevertheless, I would endeavor to contract a friendship for him, which would entirely depend upon his own behavior. To this declaration he replied, to my great surprise, that he did not desire me to love him. My friendship was sufficient, and next day repeated this strange instance of moderation in a letter which I communicated to my sister, who laughed heartily at the contents, and persuaded me that since I could love no man, he was the properest person to be my husband. Accordingly, the wedding clothes and equipage being prepared, the day, the fatal day, was fixed, on the morning of which I went to the house of my brother-in-law, Duke H., who loved me tenderly, and took my leave of the family, a family which I shall always remember with love, honor, and esteem. His grace received me in the most affectionate manner, saying at parting, Lady W., if he does not use you well, I will take you back again. The bridegroom and I met at Oxman Chapel, where the ceremony was performed by the Bishop of W., in presence of his lordship's mother, my father, and another lady. The nuptial knot being tied, we set out for my father's house in the country, and proceeded full twenty miles on our journey before my lord opened his mouth my thoughts having been all that time employed on something quite foreign to my present situation, for I was then but a giddy girl of eighteen. At length my father broke silence, and clapping his lordship on the shoulder, told him he was but a dull bridegroom, upon which my lord gave him to understand he was out of spirits. This dejection continued all the day, notwithstanding the refreshment of a plentiful dinner which he ate upon the road and in the evening we arrived at the place of our destination, where we were kindly received by my mother, though she had no liking to the match, and after supper we retired to our apartment. End of chapter 81, part 3